Voilà. So. so this morning we'll return to Shamatha without a sign. And again, I'll, I'll front load it as usual. And what I'd like to introduce this morning, rather predictably, is that we begin, as usual, by just that utter release into not doing, just releasing into space with no object. And then just naturally, as it becomes more vivid, more obvious, uh, that you are aware of something, even without focusing on any object, you are still vividly aware of something. And that of which you are aware is awareness itself, simply the experience of being aware. Then let that become more explicit, rest there in that flow of knowing of knowing, and then begin the oscillation. And there's just an awful lot of power in that. But let's, I'm going to try to really choose my words better than I have, let's say, a year ago or two years ago. And I won't use the earlier words just so I don't leave those imprints. So as you're resting there in that utter simplicity without directionality of your awareness, heighten it. The, the word that Tsongkhapa uses is pitch, like raise the pitch, raise the intensity, raise the frequency, the energy of it. Concentrate. So just more intense interest of really focusing, but knowing that it's just for a short time. And that's really something to hold in mind. I'm going to do this now for just a very short time. So I don't need to think I have to, I'm going to have to maintain that level of pitch, that level of intensity for 24 minutes. No, no, a matter of seconds. And it's, and it's your rate, it's your rate of oscillation, how long you do it. Do whatever uh, feels most comfortable to you. So if you would like to ma uh, explicitly maintain that peripheral awareness of the rhythm, rhythm of the breath and increase the intensity during inhalation, that's fine. Gives you a little something to grasp onto, a little bit of something to grasp onto, right? In that peripheral awareness of your breath. But sooner or later, you're going to want to relinquish that. But increase the intensity, heighten the awareness, and then release, okay? But then we'll go the next step today as well, and that is, I will use just once this word inversion, but just nominally, because it is not a coming in, it's not coming into your head, it's not coming in, it is, but it is attending very closely to your experience of being the observer, right? To your experience of being the observer, and when you invert your awareness, upon yourself as the observer? It's a simple question. And it's an answerable question, not with talking, but by observing. Like if I say, oh, look, look at that light right up there. Can you see it? Uh, is it round or is it square? That's an answerable question, but not by talking about it, just by looking closer. Well, of course, it's round. And so it's that kind of thing, all right? It's pointing what's your experience of being the observer, and then simply see what you see. And that is what you're seeing. So it's, it's not a koan, oh, I can't do this. No, you can see what you see. And maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's image. Maybe it's the, letter the number 13. I mean, who knows? You know? And so invert it there. That's the only word I'm going to use. And then release again. And then come back and then just pinpoint, like with a stiletto awareness, a sharply focused awareness, on your experience of being the observer. Now, what are we doing here? We can step back briefly. And that is, recall Kama Chakme in his account of Vipassana in A Spacious Path of Freedom, where he says, well, you know, you have two different approaches. You can, you can one by one examine, investigate the empty nature of all the objects appearing into your mind, one by one, space, time, matter, energy, people, 
plants, animals, minerals, etc., etc., and go through all of those and see that each one of these objects or domains of objects is devoid of inherent nature. Or you can cut right to the chase, which means go right to the core from the beginning and examine whether or not the observer, the mind, yourself, has inherent nature. And he said that's the, that's the more direct route because if you can see the emptiness of your own mind, the emptiness of the observer, then it's going to be like dominoes falling. If that one is empty, if, the, if the, the mind that is observing everything is empty, then it must follow, not just biologically, but you can actually do this investigation, and it just kind of rolls out. If the mind is in, empty of inherent nature, then all the objects to the mind, the dominoes start falling, they must be empty of inherent nature as well. If the inner space is empty, and the outer space doesn't arise independently of the inner space, the outer space is going to be empty too. But if that's the case, the demarcation between inner space and outer space, between my mind and everything that's not my mind, all the things that I observe with my mind, the demarcation is also going to be empty. It's a house of cards. Pull out one card, pull out that card down at the base of the house of cards, pull out that one little card, the inherent nature of yourself as the observer, and then just watch it fall. It's, pretty, it's very smart. It's a very smart strategy. And then we consider, well, this is a very esoteric, very mystical, very cool. I mean, that's probably very nice. Um, well, yeah, that's true, but this is immensely practical. And that is all of our attachment, all of our hostility that we experience in any time, in all situations, which then is the basis for genocide and everything evil in the world that we, that we bring to the world. It's all coming out of delusion, craving, and hostility. I think it's really one of the most brilliant insights. It's, I think it, it, it surpasses Newton's three laws and Maxwell's four laws and so forth, which have an incredible explanatory power. I speak with great admiration of those. But they are a little bit out there. If you're not interested in physics, you may, may just not care about these, right? But if you care about happiness, if you care about being free of suffering, then you just might want to look long and deep and hard at the statement that all the suffering that we human beings create for ourselves and other species and each other, all of the misery we bring, all of the evil we bring to the world, all stems from delusion, craving, and hostility. And then all their derivatives, arrogance, envy, etc., 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 right? So then if we can cut those off, then at least we're not bringing any evil to the world, which would be a, a, a great relief to everybody, right? And so here it is. We've gone right to the, right to the core Right to that observer. If there's really an observer in here, then there's really someone over there, and that means there's really a difference between the two. And now I've got myself grasping, I've got the you grasping, the it grasping out there. I've got a really serious border between the two because that's your affair, that's not my affair. This is mine, it's not yours. In other words, there's a real sharp, very serious, reified, absolute division between my side and your side. And now we're ready. My, my hand is already in the modra. It does it all by itself. What does it look like, gonna, what does it look like I'm about to do? Not Marielin is lights out. You know? I'm all ready. It's launched. The missile is, you know, it's all set. So we are defusing the missile, you know, right at its core. So this is not just some kind of a mystical exercise. 
This is really going very deep to what we already care about. Whether you're a Buddhist or not Buddhist, you're a materialist, agnostic, we all care. You're a human being or an animal, we all care about suffering less. You know? And we're going right to the core of that. It's pretty cool. Okay? So, enjoy your oscillation. Probing in on something that could be quite significant. <laughs> Oh, not so. So as a very brief review for, of the um, material we looked at yesterday morning and the day before, the outer prerequisites, the inner prerequisites for not just practicing shamatha. You shouldn't practice shamatha anywhere, and you don't have to have great renunciation or all of that simply to practice. But if there comes a point in one's life when one feels, I'd like to not only practice, but actually carry right on the way through to achieve it, and again, already having in the same breath, so that I can venture onto the path. Uh, then, for that, then you do need some very specific outer and inner. So again, I like, I like to think of the outer mandala and the inner mandala. Uh, I speak with many people who raise the possibility or an aspiration at some point in my life. I'd like to go for a long-term retreat, uh, do everything I can to achieve shamatha. I think it's a noble aspiration. And then, then timing is everything. And that is to see, well, all right, but... People sometimes say, oh, I'm interested in becoming a monk. Now, my first answer is, good, where? I mean, it's good. Yes, it's good if you'd like to become a monk, a nun. I'm, I used to be a monk. I think it's a very noble way of life, uh, which I strongly encourage when the, uh, when the circumstances are there. But where? Who's going to be your teacher? Where, where will you live? How will you support? Who are going to be your Dharma friends? And if they don't have any answer for that, I say it's a noble idea, but you might want to put that on hold. Because I know what it's like living in the West with no monastery. And it's... Uh, it's not, it's not easy. And so as with taking the step to become a monastic, well, taking the step, at least for some time, with no vows, to become a yogi and really try to achieve shamatha, the outer mandala, okay, where are you going to go? Crucial. Because if that's, if, those, if that's not set, then you can be, have all the preparation in the world from your side, subjective side. It's going to be really hard, if not impossible. But then likewise, if you, you know, you're wealthy enough, you can just buy, I, just, I just bought a place. It's all set. I have a maid. I have a servant. They're going to take care of me. They're going to keep it all quiet. Uh, but if you don't have the inner prerequisites, then that's very nice. You've just bought yourself a little vacation house. That's all it is, because you will not succeed without the inner qualities. So to be looking as one simply monitors one's life, and not just monitoring as an outside observer, but as he really the creator, the master of your life, then seeing how you can shape it, especially by way of on, ongoing shamatha practice, lojong practice is going to be immensely helpful for bringing about the inner, the inner conditions, having few desires, contentment, and so forth. And so when you see that, perhaps with some help from yourself, that the outer mandala is shaping up, maybe you've been able to contribute to creating a contemplative observatory someplace, and you've been doing the inner work, and when you see the outer and the inner have come together, that's the time to take the step. You know. And then, why not? And it should be quite efficient. Uh, the inefficiency comes from having inadequate inner preparation and inadequate outer circumstances. And then it can really go on and on, as we'll see from Atisha. So the outer and the inner, and seeing when the time is ripe and, and doing all that one can to create the outer and inner ripe conditions. So now, lo and behold, I'd like to go back to Atisha. We never stray very far from him. Atisha, Padmasambhava, all in the same family. So, of course, we've been looking at his seven-point mind training, the kind of the more inner teachings, 
bit more ready for very, very dedicated practitioners. We now turn to just some verses that I've selected from uh, his more public dharma, his lamrim, uh, and it's called A Lamp for the Path to Enlightenment. He composed this for Tibetans, and he also wrote his own commentary. Uh, the, the root text, of course, is translated, and I don't think the commentary is. It's quite wonderful. Um, I haven't been able to get to it yet. I hope somebody will. But just a few verses now pertaining to our shamatha practice. So, verse 35. It's not a very long text, by the way. Uh, Atisha writes, just as a bird with undeveloped wings, so a little fledgling, eh? cannot fly in the sky. Those without the power of extrasensory perception cannot work for the good of living beings. <laughs> Shall I just kind of go home right now? <laughs> Can we all go home? Uh, and, but of course, I think we want to pause. I'm going to just assume he's not a silly man. And so if you don't have extrasensory perception, does that mean that a doctor can't be a good doctor, a nurse, a, a therapist, a, a dharma teacher, etc., etc.? Does that mean that you're just kind of, you're, you're worthless? Well, of course he doesn't mean that. Of course not. Um, but this is Lam Rim. This is Lam Rim. This is the stages of the path. Can you lead people effectively to the path, which is what the Lam Rim is all about. People sometimes forget that. Um, can you do that if you don't have extra sense of perception and not just get them to the path, but actually guide them along the path? And a close analogy would be, uh, if you're a doctor and you, have, you don't even have a stethoscope, not even a stethoscope, nothing to measure blood pressure, uh, you don't even have a clock to, you know, to measure the pulse, you know, how, you know, how many heartbeats per, per, per minute, uh, and you have no, no lab tests, you, you have no technology whatsoever. Um, okay, now, what can you do, doc? You know, what can you do? How effective are you going to be for treating people who say, I, my tummy feels bad? Um, maybe a little pat on the stomach, I'm very sorry, want a hug? And how about take this sugar tablet, it might work. You know, you're going to be out of luck, especially in modern medicine where the technology is so superb. And so this is what he's saying, he's raising the bar very high, because um, there's much that can be done, obviously, without extrasensory perception, but this is well deep into the territory of Lam Rim. He's covered everything else, renunciation, bodhicitta, the first four perfections. He's now shamat and vipassana, and he's finished, right? So. In this path, as you're about to venture really, you're getting onto the on-ramp, onto the great highway uh, to enlightenment. And the idea here, of course, because this is Vajrayana Buddhism, Mahayana Vajrayana Buddhism, and he is, an, he is a consummate master of both, Mahayana and a Vajrayana adept. And he has as his mentor is Tara. She appears to him regularly, and he poses questions to her back and forth. I love that myself. Um, that he, what he's really talking about is not kind of just gently taking people by the hand and, you know, well, give it a hundred lifetimes, a thousand lifetimes, you know, we'll try to work it out. It's kind of like really in the back of the mind is, um, it may never be any better than this in our future lifetimes for the foreseeable future. If you kind of look at the globe and how it's turning out, you know, human population and society and so forth, if you think that the, the environment here for Dharma is going to be better in 20 or 50 years. I think you have a very vivid imagination you know, within this historical cycle. Maybe things will turn around, but right now, I, that kind of doesn't look that way to me. You know, as I see that whole generation of lamas that I trained with back 40, 30, 40 years ago, they're almost all gone. And what I don't see, and I've asked with Mathieu, and I've asked, you know, do you see good replacements coming in? that are going to rise to the same stature as Lingen Rinpoche and Tijan Rinpoche, the two tutors of the Dalai Lama, and Dingo Kensei Rinpoche, and the, this great Sakya Lama, whose name I always forget, 
But of that stature, who remains 17 days in the, in the clear light of death, are we seeing good replacements, you know, replacement parts coming in? Uh, no. No, we're not. Maybe in Tibet, but it's really a tough place to practice. They'll put their, hat, their, their fist down on you at any time. And they don't need any excuse except for we don't like what you're doing. And bam, they, you know, they, they bulldoze 70% of your, your, your cabins in your, in your retreat, in your, in your monastery, which they did just about 10 years ago at the largest monastery in Tibet. Chinese government didn't like it. They just said, we don't like it. They just bulldozed 70% of them and said, scram, we don't want you here. You know? So now they're back 40,000-fold. Those Buddhists keep on coming back. So, hmm, how about achieving enlightenment in one lifetime? If we think that our next lifetime on this planet is going to be better than good, and just hang out and look, you know, be hopeful for the next time. But this lifetime, when we still have people like His Holiness Dalai Lama and others available, uh, so the, the backstory here is, if you don't have extrasensory perception, how are you going to lead people to, to, to achieve not just the path, but achieve enlightenment. Because once you've achieved the path, there's just no reason to tarry. Not when you have Dzogchen around. Not when you have Vajrayana around. Stage of generation completion. And people who are qualified, like Yandran Bhoshe, still alive. You know? And then I met this yogi. I was so happy to see how young he was. Not long ago. Nine years in retreat in the caves up above Samyeling, the oldest monastery that Padmasambhava got going. Uh, this yogi is only up 50 from Tibet. He spent nine years in retreat, and he's achieved cities. And as I mentioned, I saw them. And he's now building a monastery for 2,000 monks in eastern Tibet with the approval of the Chinese government because he's miraculously healed so many people in the Chinese government. They line up by the thousands for his healing. There's so many highly placed government officials that they gave him a permission that is virtually without parallel in modern history in, in Tibet since their occupation. He came up with this great big vision of a monastery back in Kham for 2,000 monks. He showed me the plans. I have it on my, right here on my computer. And they gave him permission to do it. So he's only 50. Hallelujah. You know, he's not 80 or 90. So there are still a few. This is alive. This is alive. So is it going to get any better than this one? So if you don't have extrasensory perception, and this man quite clearly did, and Yandermuchi clearly does, and so forth, then how are you going to lead people to enlightenment in one lifetime? He says, well, you can't. Just like, you, know, you can't fly if you're a little birdie. And then coming to shamatha, or that, and, and then he said, oh, extrasensory perception. This is, again, like the doctor who has all this battery of technology to be able to have extrasensory perception of you know, what's going on in your innards. You know, that's really cool. It is a kind of extrasensory perception. You don't just look at it and see. You've got x-rays. That's extrasensory perception as far as I'm concerned. And so then he goes on. The merit gained in a single day by someone with extrasensory perception cannot be gained even in a hundred lifetimes by one without extrasensory perception. The good you can do in the world. Now, he's already assuming bodhicitta, of course, because that came earlier. Been there and done that. That's your motivation, right? But with that motivation of bodhicitta and then developing extrasensory perception, and of course, he's not even mentioning, oh, gee, does that exist? He said, what, what have you been living under a rock? This is a thousand years ago, thousand years ago in, in India and Tibet. Everybody knew that extrasensory perception was true. If you didn't, you just have to be stupid, right? Nowadays we have to give. Now we have to waste time trying to, you know, defend it. Ugh. I have no time with that anymore. But there it is. In one day, you can do greater good, bring about greater benefit in the world than in a hundred lifetimes, if you don't have extrasensory perception. Just like a, a doctor with a, a doctor or a medical facility 
with a fully, fully equipped hospital. That's a good analogy, I think. A, you know, full like a university hospital, fully equipped with all the staff, the technicians, all the technology. They can do more in one day than a big empty building can do in 100 lifetimes if they don't have the technology and so forth, right? So there it is. And so there it is, existential perception, a really good thing. Un, un, uh, not, nothing bashful about it. Really accomplish it. It's really worth doing. And then he goes on, without the achievement of shamatha, extrasensory perception will not arise. Therefore, make repeated effort. If at first you do not succeed, don't give up. Uh, or Thomas Edison and his 700 trials of learning how not to make an electric light bulb, you know, uh, make repeated effort to accomplish shamatha. Okay? Now, as usual, uh, I'm going to assume that he's a very intelligent man when he says, and he's, he's very savvy, he traveled all over India, he went to Tibet, he went to Southeast Asia, to Indonesia and so forth. He really got around, uh, as well as being brilliant and tremendously erudite. And so he says, without shamatha, extrasensory perception will, will not arise. Well, yes, it will. Yes, it does. But he knows that, and I know that. And that is people, um, when, I was, when I was translating for His Holiness in Athens many years ago, 1979, uh, a woman came to him, and she, and she told him, uh, Your Holiness, it's just a, she had a one-on-one -on -one audience, just one went out of the crowd. And uh, she said, Your Holiness, I found some time ago, just recently, a couple of years ago, that I have the ability to heal. It just it came on me. And I lay hands on people, and they get better, and get better a lot. It's not a fluke, it's not, and I'm not lying to you. I don't know how this happened, but it works. And what shall I do? And he said, oh, this happens. It's a maturation of karma. Use it with a benevolent motivation. Be as much service as you can. And if, if it fades out, just as it came in, kind of inexplicably, if it fades out inexplicably, don't be upset. This kind of thing happens karmically. So just be good, you know. Practice, practice well. Good motivation. And so as with healing ability, that may come out of the blue. People, some people are naturally gifted. Other people are naturally clairvoyant. Some of you know such people, right? And, it's your own, and you, 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 when they give their accounts, you say, wait a minute, that just, that can't be a coincidence, you know? So you know that's true. And then if you ask them, have you ever meditated? Have you achieved shamatha? The chances are they'll say no. Or a friend of mine who has done a lot of research on, on uh, remote viewing and precognition, uh, Russell Targ, Russell Targ. Uh, we don't know each other well, but he came to one of my reaches a long time ago. Nice fellow, professionally trained physicist, raised millions of dollars for research at the Stanford, uh, Stanford Research Institute, SRI. Uh, back in the 80s, I think, got money from the CIA, from the State Department, I think, the, or the Defense Department, for sure. CIA and Defense Department, I think. And had millions of dollars of grants to do rigorous scientific studies and develop, train people for remote viewing. So clairvoyance and precognition. And he said he came as a physicist and then he came out, said this is not, he said, for me this is not a belief. Does this exist? Remote viewing, clairvoyance, precognition, obvious. He said this is not for me now a belief. I mean the evidence is so overwhelming for a person who looks at it with an open mind and moreover it can be trained, right? But again, the most gifted person that he ever had in his lab was a woman they called in as simply a, a subject. You know, just like, anybody want to come in? $10 an hour. And one woman came in, and she wound up being the most gifted person they ever had there, with no training at all, right? And so, it happens. But then they found, uh, when they did this years, I don't know, 10 to 20 years of research, I think, and he's published several books. Check it out on Amazon. Um, 
they found that the accuracy for their most gifted uh, subjects, individuals, for remote viewing, that their accuracy was about 60%. Um, and so then the War Department, or the Defense Department, they like to call it, Offense Department, Offensive Department, I don't know. They're needed, I guess. They are needed. Um, they found 60%. That, that's, uh, it's not good enough for us to base military policy. Uh, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? It's not good enough. 60% accuracy is just not good. If we, can't, we can't make military policy on 60% accuracy. If you're, if you're doing remote viewing of something 8,000 miles away, and by the way, it makes no difference whether it's 80 miles away or 8,000, uh, mere chance. Um, and so they basically scuttled the program. They said, well, this is very interesting, but we can't base military progress uh, strategy on that. Uh, of course, thereafter, to everybody's great relief, uh, as Dick Cheney assured everybody, they had slam dunk 100% guaranteed proof that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. So it's good that they sacrificed 60% for 100% because that's much more reliable. So, but what he's saying here is not that, because I mean, he knows this so much better than I do, not that nobody has any degree of extrasensory perception without having achieved shamatha, because people do. But he's saying if you want to have it robust, dependable, just like you, you, all of you have had some really good sessions, and them session sessions, relatively, not so good. Once you've achieved shamatha, you just have a whole bunch of good sessions. You don't, in terms of your straight shamatha practice, apart from major ill health or something like that, you don't have bad days for your shamatha on the cushion. You may have bad days off the cushion, but it's consistent. And likewise, when, you're, when your new base camp for your practice is shamatha, that's where you're always coming back to. And from that sheer luminosity, that transparency, the clarity and purity of your substrate consciousness, when you take the laser pointer of your attention and you're probing to the past, you're probing into, into space, with some training, you don't get automatically extrasensory perception necessarily, but just by achieving shamatha, but um, you're right there. It's within hand's reach. Any extrasensory perception you develop on the base of shamatha then is going to be much, much more reliable, robust, dependable uh, than having these spikes of extrasensory perception without it. And that's what he's getting at. Okay? So he says, repeatedly uh, give repeated effort to accomplish shamatha. This is really important. Otherwise, you won't have robust, dependable, consistent extrasensory perception, in which case then you can't really serve the needs of sentient beings. And then he says this all-important verse, we're almost finished here, as long as the conditions for shamatha are incomplete, samadhi will not be accomplished even if you meditate diligently for a thousand years. So there's one big important statement, and I've said it before, outer conditions, there they are, cut and dried, nothing mystical there, straightforward, get a good contemplative observatory up. And then inner conditions, there they are, nothing mystical, you don't have to be a great bodhisattva, you don't have to be some super-duper mystic or incredibly gifted. You just need to get those qualities together and then put them together and the way you go. But if you don't have the outer and inner, then no matter how diligent, how many hours you put in per day, how much aspiration you have, even a thousand years won't be enough. And then we finish, in terms of these excerpt, uh, excerpted uh, verses, when a contemplative has achieved shamatha, extrasensory perception will also be realized. So you're just right next door to it. And then if you want to read about that, go to this classic text, uh, the, the Visuddhimagga, Path of Purification, by Buddha Gosa. Again, you can download it for free on the internet. And there's a whole chapter that tells the various type of paranormal abilities and extrasensory modes of extrasensory perception. 
including remote viewing and so forth, that you can develop upon the basis of having achieved shamatha or jhana and so forth. Uh, and that's without any allusion to, that's Theravada tech support, uh, that's without any reference to ways to tremendously augment the power of your insight and extracentric perception. For example, by way of vipassana, which vipassana in terms of realization of emptiness, perfection of wisdom, that you don't find. That you don't find in Vasudhi Maga, uh, let alone Vajrayana stage regeneration. That incredibly boosts your existential perception, fantastically. Let alone stage of completion, let alone Dzogchen. Um, and so it's, it's just basically, you're, you have your shamatha and then insight into impermanence, nature of dukkha and non-self. But with that, but, but just with jhana in the Theravada, that's enough to develop a wide array of existential perceptions. So as I mentioned before, in the, in the Indo-Tibetan tradition, once you've achieved shamatha, there's very little emphasis by the meditation masters themselves to go beyond that in terms of the sheer shamatha track, that is to achieve full first jhana, second jhana, third, fourth jhana. I've, I, was, I was taught these a long, long time ago, and I had the un, unavoidable conclusion that this is academic, that is actually achieving the first jhana, second, third, fourth, into the formless realm, infinite space, infinite consciousness, and so forth, that it was really an academic presentation. And I, I still hold that conclusion. Uh, because that's, that's where they said, okay, that's academic. Meantime, we're busy. We've got our hands full here. We've just achieved shamatha. We're not going not gonna to waste any time with that because we can get a lot more bang for our buck, a lot more benefit for the time we put on the cushion by going directly to vipassana. That union of vipassana, shamatha and vipassana, realization of emptiness, that's going to give you so much more than just reali you know, realizing higher jhanas. And think about the example. Think about a non-lucid dream. And think about achieving shamatha with a non-lucid dream. And now, within that non-lucid dream, imagine gaining some direct, very deep realization of the lack of inherent nature of anything objectively appearing to you in the dream, and the lack of inherent nature of yourself in the dream. So you know, you know actually experientially that everything is arising simply independent upon your conceptual designation, and has no existence whatsoever independent of that, which you confirm by just stopping conceptualizing, and the whole dreamscape dissolves into the substrate, right? So imagine if you had that type of insight, a stable mind, and that type of insight into the emptiness of inherent nature of all objects and subjects. Can you see it's kind of obvious? You could start really playing with that dream as you wish by realizing the emptiness and then shifting your perspective, shifting the conceptual designation, and thereby turning water, wine, uh, water into wine and so forth and so on by designating it. Multiplying fishes, that's a, that's a classic kind of practice in dream yoga. See one fish, turn them into a whole bunch of fishes. You know, water into wine, piece of cake. What, 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 you know, what vintage do you want? You know? Want to walk on water? Sure, no problem. You know, if, you, if you're, you know, getting, if you can realize the lack of inherent nature of the water, but then even beyond that, if you've not only realized the emptiness of the phenomena, but actually if you become lucid, oh, well, then, then show's over. Then you do whatever you like with it. You should become more and more lucid. Then you see it's completely malleable. So there's a way to develop extrasensory perception without having to achieve the first, second, third jhana and go through all the exercises that Buddha Gosa teaches in the path of purification. But now the concluding one before we take off, which is going to be about one minute. When a contemplative has achieved shamatha, extrasensory perception will also be realized. But if one does not cultivate the perfection of wisdom, and that is realization of emptiness and dependent origination, one's obscurations will not come to an end. So there is just, again, this total unanimity here. 
a consensus. Shamatha doesn't get you to the path. Shamatha doesn't bring about any irreversible transformation whatsoever, but you are perfectly poised now to use this wonderfully serviceable mind to venture into the sixth perfection, now that you've nailed the fifth one, perfection of meditation, uh, to go on to the sixth perfection. And then you do some really major irreversible damage to your mental afflictions, to self-grasping, to self-centeredness, and you're really launching onto the path. From that point, you'd really like to have a spiritual mentor who is clairvoyant, who can take you by the best thing would be one who can just take you by the hand when you've just entered the path and say, come with me. I know where the end is. I've been there. Just take you all the way. Why mess around? If you've achieved the path, I can't imagine you wanting to do anything else. I mean, you'll, you'll get a snack and you'll pee. Besides that, you know, you're going to be full on because you'll know it. You'll know this is it. Now's the opportunity. Okay? Oh, yeah. Enjoy your day. Hasta la vista. <laughs>